Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Saturday, December the 12th, 2020. On this edition of The Politocrat, a look at December 12th in history. Well, at least through two events. And you'll find out exactly what I'm talking about right after this. December 12th has been, I guess in history, a very uh, infamous date on the calendar. There have been these infamous events, which I will talk about, one more than the other. But I just want to provide the first one for some historical reference and paramount importance. Five days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Five days after that, on December the 12th, 1941, Hitler had a meeting at the Reich Chancellery. And at that meeting, he declared that the, quote, extermination of the Jews was imminent. End quote. Hitler was on his way to destroying and genociding millions of Jewish people. That declaration was made on December 12th. 1941. Now, Hitler said that, but look, Jewish people were being genocided even before 1941. And quite frankly, the United States turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to it all. And it wasn't until the attack on Pearl Harbor, five days before December 12th, 1941, that the United States decided, oh, well, you know, we got hit, we better get involved here. And FDR got involved. Now, it's not a secret, it's actually an open secret that FDR and many others were well aware of what was happening to Jewish people across Europe and particularly in Germany and, and elsewhere. It was an everybody knew. And FDR was very, very slow indeed to act, to stop what was going on, to stop these genocides of Jewish people. December 12th, 1941 was an infamous date and it was a further exclamation point on the evils of Hitler and the genocide that he was perpetrating across Europe and doing so with blinding speed. 
some 13, maybe close to 14 million people, 6 million of them Jewish, were completely and utterly genocided. People do not want to talk about this, but it must be talked about. December 12, 1941, that declaration by Hitler, that declaration that said, we must and we will do this to Jewish people. Well, he didn't say it like that. That declaration was again an exclamation point. And we must never, ever, ever forget. And more than that, as I say, and as Jewish people around the world say, never again. And that's the historical context. December the 12th. A date of infamy on the calendar. December the 12th. And sometimes in history, December the 12th, and I'm not filling in every moment of, of history, but December the 12th. And you must remember that 1941 was less than 100 years ago. December the 12th was and is a date on the calendar that you should pay attention to. In 1987, the December 12th movement was founded in New York City by a group of activists, black Af activists and pan-Africanists who started December 12th movement, which is a movement that started by Viola Plummer, Alombe Braff, and others, Sonny Carson. Those are all New York City activists. Um, two of them have passed away, Alombe Braff and Sonny Carson, both of whom are, or I should say were, Pan-Africanists. And that movement, the December 12th movement, and many people in New York City will know this. That movement got started in 1987 in response to the increased and heightened police brutality and killing of black people in New York City and beyond. But particularly in New York City in the 1980s where that was going on and in addition to that where white thugs were running all around and murdering black people. In the 1980s in New York, there were a spate of attacks, murders of black people, both by police and by white men who murdered. Terrorist thugs who would roam the streets in packs, packs of wolves, if you will, and would run around and terrorize and murder black people. 
I can think of Eleanor Bumpers being murdered by a police officer in New York City in the 1980s. I can think of Yvonne Smallwood being murdered by a police officer in the 1980s. I can think of Michael Stewart being murdered by a transit police officer in New York in the 1980s. I can think of Arthur Hillier, same thing. I can think of so many other people. I can also think of Michael Griffith murdered by a white racist mob in Howard Beach in Queens in 1986. I can also think of numerous others. Yusuf Hawkins being murdered in 1989 by a white murderous racist male mob in Brooklyn, New York. There are so many other people that I didn't mention in New York City alone who were murdered by white male thugs, terrorists, or by white male New York City police officers. All of that happened in the 1980s, and of course it continues to this day. I talk about this because the December 12th movement, as I said, was founded in response to these murders and, and, was an activist group that was trying to fight back and was established to fight back against this murder of black people in New York City and again beyond. And the December 12th movement did a lot of activism, including days of outrage where they would, along with, I think, occasionally, I think Reverend Sharpton would get involved in this too, Al Sharpton, where they would stop normal day-to-day activities in New York City. There was one notable event where you had people literally getting on train tracks in the New York City subway in the 1980s, if I remember correctly, to stop the trains from running. And that was engineered by the December 12th movement. There was so much outrage in response to that. More outrage about that than there was about the fact that black people were being murdered across New York City. And there was little that was being done to stop it. So 1987, December 12, 1987, was an important day. I remember you had uh, Reverend Herbert Daughtry. For those of you who are New Yorkers who know him, you had uh, Reverend Calvin Butts also, to a degree as well with that, uh, at least interfaced with that movement from time to time of the Abyssinian Baptist Church. You had Father Lawrence Lucas, a part of the December 12th movement as well. So those of you who are attuned 
to New York City political history will be well aware of that movement, which I believe still exists. As I said, two of its seminal members have passed away since. As I said, Sonny Carson and Alombe Breath. Again, I am providing these events with a sense of history to mark what this date means. Now, of course, I'm not saying that there aren't some more rosier parts of history when it comes to the date of December 12th on the calendar. I would never, ever say that to you. But what I will say is is that the reason this episode is being done on this day, December 12th, because I want to get to two more current episodes that really uh, kind of are very consequential as well. In addition to the two that I have uh, already outlined here. I now want to flash forward 13 years from 1987 to the year 2000. And 20 years ago today, on, and it was a Saturday if I remember it correctly, December the 12th, 2000, you had Bush v. Gore. Bush v. Gore in the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court decided Bush v. Gore after some 30 plus, maybe 35 days or so. After the 2000 general election. And it's interesting because in this episode, I am going to be talking about two general elections from two different countries that were decided on December the 12th. Both of them in the last 20 years in two different countries. I'm just going to get you warmed up on this Supreme Court because I think it has to be, this has to be broken down into well, at least a couple of pieces so that this is uh, as digestible as it can be yet also conveying the really serious aspects of what was being done and the consequences of what was being done. So after roughly 35 or so days of legal battles, the Brooks Brothers riot, as it was called, in Florida in 2000, All of these preppy rich people who were aligned with the Republican Party who decided to bang on the doors and talk about stop the count, stop the count, let us in, let us in, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Some of those people are still around. Some of those people orchestrated this. Some of them are on TV. Some of them are very prominent. But in that era where all of us, well, not all of us, but many of us, but particularly those in the news media in the United States, were scoffing at Florida and making Florida look like a fool. Remember when we all said, or at least some of us said, especially those in the media 
who would sit there and say, oh, Florida, that crazy state with those butterfly ballots. Oh, my goodness. They don't know how to vote in Florida. They're stupid. That's what people were saying. Some people were saying it. And, you know, we have the photos and the video of the guy with the magnifying glass and his eye being super, super large. And, you know, it's like some kind of cartoon. You would have thought it was a cartoon. I mean, couldn't you just picture Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, or someone else using a magnifying glass to look for a wascally vomit and that's how it was presented in the media back in 2000 nothing was being said about the voter suppression that was going on oh thank you for that then Secretary of State of Florida Catherine Harris you know we appreciate your uh, purging the roles of some 90,000 plus black voters the media was not talking about that then It's barely talking about that now. And Jeb Bush, then the governor of Florida, and his little role in all of that. Oh, yeah. And Bush v. Gore? Yeah. The Bush in Bush v. Gore is related to Jeb Bush. The guy that went on to start two wars, at least one of them being illegal. You know, that Bush who st- who really should have been brought up on war crimes charges and should have been impeached. But, you know, Obama said, no, we're not going to look back at that. That Bush was George W. Bush. That's the Bush now who's actually being remembered fondly by some in the news media, by many in the corporate news media. And by the way, by some on social media. Oh, isn't it lovely, George W. Bush? Never mind the million Iraqis that he murdered. Oh, you know, never mind the, uh, what, I don't even lost count now, 8,000, 9,000, 6,000 U.S. service personnel that he has killed with his lies. Never mind that. But that is what all of what December the 12th, 2000 led to. Because on that date, exactly 20 years ago today, the United States Supreme Court decided, decided to violate the 10th Amendment to the United States Constitution. I can only put it in the most honest way. Because when you cut through the, I don't know, what was it? 13, 30 page Bush v. Gore decision. When you cut right through that, That's exactly what it was. This was a five to four decision that said that essentially that Florida should stop counting its votes. I am distilling that to its very essence because that is precisely what it is that the U.S. Supreme Court said exactly 20 years ago today.
That is a very dangerous thing. The United States Supreme Court deciding a presidential election, which is exactly what it did exactly 20 years ago today on December 12, 2000. This really was part of a coup. A coup of institutions and a coup of a nation done by the Republican Party with a lot of help. George Bush's father, Poppy Bush, Poppy Bush had friends on the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, who was then the Chief Justice. Clarence Thomas was on that Supreme Court back then. Poppy Bush put him on the Supreme Court in 1991. In other words, the fix was in. There were more Republican voices on that court. In fact, there hasn't been a predominantly Democratic court in the United States since the 1950s, if you can believe it. The 1950s, when Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas was decided. That was decided in 1954. That was basically the last time that you had a majority Democratic United States Supreme Court. And here we are almost 70 years later. Well, I'll get to the year 2020. Believe me, I will. I'm getting there. But what I want to do is talk about this date, December 12th, and I'm doing that with this Supreme Court case because this was a very deeply troubling and disturbing, to say the least, development 20 years ago. And I remember it specifically. I, I was watching every day of this for 36 days. Every day of it, you know, and a, a student of law, an attorney, I, I'm watching this. And I was thinking, you know, imagine if I had been told in law school that this case was a case that was something that we should really live by. I mean, this case absolutely upset the apple cart. And that's putting it very euphemistically. Because as I alluded to just a few minutes ago, this was part of a coup. This was the tyranny of an institution. And I'm going to talk about that again a little bit later. And why there is something really important to open our eyes to about all of this. This was a coup 20 years ago today of an election, a takeover. Hadn't been the first time that we've seen this. Oh, it may have been the first time that the U.S. Supreme Court got directly involved. But we saw this in 1876 with the Rutherford B. Hayes, Samuel J. Tilden compromise. The one where there was a very, very close election. It was essentially decided in the House of Representatives in Congress. 
and the agreement was is that you can have the election, Rutherford B. Hayes, but you have got to put Southerners in your cabinet. You've got to pull out all of those federal troops out of these southern states. So all that reconstruction nonsense that you were doing where black folk were actually having some power and independence and uh, political power and their own uh, charting their own course, all that nonsense, you got to scrap that. You got to pull out those troops. And Rutherford B. Hayes said, okay, boss, I'll do that. So Samuel Tilden, who he had narrowly beaten, I guess, or was it, it was a hotly contested election. I mean, Tilden was saying, no, I won it, damn it. I won that election. I mean, people didn't even take Hayes seriously back then. They mocked him. They mocked Rutherford B. Hayes. They made jokes about him. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, I'm not kidding. Because they didn't look at Rutherford B. Hayes as a legitimate president. By the way, he is not the first. There are others, I should say. He's not the last, is he? How many illegitimate presidents have we had? Now you've got Wingnut saying that the guy who's going to take power in 39 days from now is somehow not legitimate, despite the fact that he has won an election by over 7 million votes. But Joe Biden's not the focus of this today. Joe Biden is not the focus. The focus is how this date is an important date in many respects, this date, December the 12th, because it does reveal a lot of things, I think. And going through this history with you, and I appreciate your listening to this. Going through this history is very important. Very important indeed. And I do think it is very much very much a marker You have to understand something here. Rutherford B. Hayes was a Republican. And back then in 1876, the Republicans were viewed as the decent party. You know, the way that Democrats are are viewed now as a party of the people. The Republicans back then were viewed as the party of the people. And so this is what happened. Rutherford B. Hayes, who, by the way, was an abolitionist, or at least became one, decided to pull the troops. This was the condition for him winning the White House. So it was this really selfish thing. He pulled the troops, the federal troops out of there, and left black people to the slaughter, essentially. And not only that, on top of that, ended Reconstruction. 
Oh, you know, yeah, I'll, yeah, you know, you can be this and you can be that. And yeah, I know, but yeah, I want the presidency. So I'm going to the party of the decent Republican back then in uh, 17, uh, excuse me, 1876. Oh, I'm going to just, yeah, you know, I'll just, I'll take the troops out. And then all these southern states went back to doing what they were doing before all of this, which was basically enslaving black people and murdering them. I mean, enslavement was over, perhaps based on the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, but we all know about Juneteenth and we also know that various forms of enslavement were continuing in this country of black people right up until, and some say until the 19, 1960s. I mean, that wasn't even what Doug Blackman wrote about in his book, Slavery by Another Name. You've got to read that book, by the way, by Douglas Blackman. Slavery by Another Name argues and, 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 and again documents that Enslavement happened beyond the Civil War, and not only beyond the Civil War, happened right through to the 1950s. The 1950s. But I cite Rutherford B. Hayes versus Samuel J. Tilton for a reason. Because it's part of this continuance of a sense of tyranny in this country, the United States. I can go to Nixon in the 1960s, 1968, treason. I can go to Ronald Reagan in 1980, treason. I can go to George W. Bush, and that's where I'm going to go, and I'm going to continue that journey right after this. Welcome back. Institutions are only as strong as we make them. And there are numerous people who have argued this. And I totally agree with them. I really do. But in many respects, the United States Supreme Court has been one of those places that has made some of the most atrocious and inhumane decisions in its entire existence. I can go back to 1896 or thereabouts with uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. Or maybe Dred Scott around the very same time. I can go back to decisions like Korematsu versus the United States. I can go back to numerous other decisions that would make a person with an ounce of humanity wretch. In horror. I can go back to as recently as just 10 years ago. With Citizens United. In 2010. We are coming up on the 11th year anniversary of that fateful decision. That has us where we are now. In politics. When it comes to money. But I want to stick with this one from exactly 20 years ago today, Bush v. Gore. Why? Because it is especially problematic. And it is 
and especially problematic decision. As was the decision that would follow it 13 years later in the very infamous case as well. Shelby County versus Holder, which eviscerated Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act. Believe me, there is a connection between these two. And while I won't go into that connection here, I only cited cited as a an historical marker that is very important, which is why the U.S. Supreme Court is the thing to watch of these three branches of government here in the United States. There are people who are being elected to the Senate, by the way, and this is a side note, but not that much of a side note. There are people in the United States Senate who are going to come into power next month who do not even know, who cannot even tell you what the three branches of government are in the United States. Well, let me tell you, Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, what those three branches of government are. They are the legislative branch, They are the executive branch. And they are the judicial branch. Those, Tommy Tuberville, elected by the voters of Alabama over Doug Jones, who fought against the Klan and prosecuted the murderers of four little girls who were murdered in the 1963 bombings in the church at the 16th Street Baptist Church. That, Tommy Tuberville, for your edification, serves as a lesson. Those are the three branches of government which you could not get correct. If you had to take a civics test, Tommy Tuberville, Do you think you would pass that test if it meant that you had to, in order to become a United States senator, pass a test on civics? Do you think that you could do that? You know what my answer to that question is with Tommy Tuberville. But I mentioned that temporary diversion to go back to the fact that you need to watch this U.S. Supreme Court and you need to watch it carefully. And the investment of Mitch McConnell is in judges. He has blocked judges. The Supreme Court comes into play again in 2016 when President Obama had a vacancy on the Supreme Court, or rather the Supreme Court had a vacancy. And as per the Constitution and its Article 2 powers, the President had the right to name a Supreme Court justice and the Senate, under its Article 1 powers, had the right and, and had to provide advice and consent, a hearing of that presidential pick, 
and a consent about it, one way or the other. That was not afforded Merrick Garland. When Anthony Scalia, who, by the way, was a member of that United States Supreme Court on December 12, 2000, passed away in February of 2016. President Obama, within a few weeks, and not just the one and a half hours that Mitch McConnell announced on Twitter that he was going to fill the seat of the dearly departed, who, I mean, literally an hour and a half after her passing, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, when within an hour or so, an hour and a half, he was on Twitter, was Mitch McConnell, reminding his, uh, well, parading to his Republican friends that don't you worry his Federalist friends. Don't you worry about a thing. Pretty mama. Stevie Wonder. I am going to swiftly replace the now deceased, oh, hour and a half ago deceased, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't digress so much because all of this is related. So let me jump back. Just a few years to 2016, when Merrick Garland was named. And Mitch McConnell refused to even listen, to even give Merrick Garland, a Republican, I might add, a hearing. Refused. He wasn't given the courtesy. In fact, Mitch McConnell, the senator, the Republican from Kentucky, the Senate majority leader, has been for a number of years now, violated his Article 1 duties as prescribed by the United States Constitution. And what that Article 1 says is that the Senate shall, shall is mandatory, provide advice and consent on the picks of a president. Now, I'm paraphrasing that. But if you look at Article 1, that is what it says if you go through the text. I, I really want to be clear about that. You can find, and I'll, I'll link to this so that you can read it for yourself. But these are the things where institutions get violated, they get trampled on by men and women. I mean, it, it, I can give you a really quick example. Look at this year when one Emily Murphy decided that it, was be, it would be a really good idea to hold up a transition. And she had all the power to grant the transition, just like previous people in the GAO office or whatever that office is called, general accounting office or something, everybody who had been in her position prior had granted the transition 
It was their own independent power to do so. But of course, this one this year was just a little bit different for Emily Murphy, who somehow acted as if she had no power and that Donald Trump was stopping her. And that really ain't the truth. It was an excuse. So there are women who have played their role in doing this. There are women who have played their role in this undermining of institutions. And it is largely, it is largely men who have, overwhelmingly so. And I cited examples. Some of them much more clear and devastating than others. So Mitch McConnell did not do his due diligence as the Constitution required. And the Constitution, which was there by the founding fathers and who owned black people as property, who enslaved and owned black people, who auctioned and participated in auctions of black folk. These were the folks who wrote this darn document. The document that also provided that black folk were three-fifths of a human being. This is part of the three-fifths compromise. And I've had guests on like the racial justice attorney, Judith Brown Dianus, who's talked about this, who've mentioned this. But I want to say to you that this in 2000 was not the first time, 20 years ago today. And to get to the nuts and bolts of things, in 2000, on December 12th, the United States Supreme Court decided that Florida had to stop this count. Violating that 10th Amendment and the 10th Amendment in the Constitution, the 10th Amendment says, the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And that is pretty darn clear if you read the sum and substance of that. And that's what it is. That 10th Amendment that I just read to you, dear listener. It's unmistakable. That is the classic Republican, classic Federalist states' rights argument. Oh, but you know, nobody paid attention to states' rights on December the 12th, 2000. At least not those in the majority of the United States Supreme Court. No, they didn't do that. They trampled on states' rights. They trampled specifically on Florida's rights to count their votes. And if that is not a destruction of any semblance of small d democracy, I don't know what is. This was so blatant. George W. Bush had claimed, oh, I will be irreparably harmed if these votes get counted. What? Yes, I'm not kidding you. He absolutely, his team of lawyers made that argument. Petitioner will be irreparably harmed if these votes get counted because he could lose and that would be the harm. So counting perfectly, 
counting votes would result in someone being harmed. I mean, isn't that the essence of democracy? To count the votes? Not stop the count? And if you think that 20 years ago today, in Bush v. Gore, is not related to what's going on now, 20 years to the day, where... Donald Trump is telling and has been for the last God knows how many weeks now telling people to stop counting votes in all of these states where black populations decided this election for Joe Biden. If you don't think there's a relationship between the Republican George W. Bush, who hates Donald Trump, by the way, and vice versa, saying to the Supreme Court through his lawyers exactly 20 years ago today to stop counting votes in Florida and Donald Trump today and the last few weeks in this country, the United States, telling states with these frivolous lawsuits that, by the way, should get Rule 11 sanctions for all of these lawyers and get them disbarred before the bar, telling those states to stop counting votes? Stop counting the votes? Republicans love to uh, do that. If you don't think there's a relationship between those two things, maybe there's a bridge in Brooklyn that I could sell you. I'm not done with this yet. I'll be right back. Welcome back. And I'm paraphrasing here. James Bolden once said that we are our history. And that if we pretend otherwise, we literally are making criminals of ourselves. And he's right. He was right. And still is right. So I want to get to really the conclusion of this particular portion of what I've been saying here about the United States Supreme Court on December the 12th, 2000. As we are on the 20th anniversary of a very, very dangerous Supreme Court decision, along with the other very dangerous ones, some of which I have mentioned and enumerated here on this episode. George W. Bush was saying, because there was a recount going on in Florida, and George W. Bush was saying through his lawyers to the court the day before, but the point is that was the thrust of his bringing this to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, you know, if these votes continue to be counted, I mean, God forbid the democratic process continue. If these votes continue to be counted, as per the Florida Supreme Court, then my goodness, I'm going to be irreparably harmed because if I'm going to be irreparably harmed, if I am irreparably harmed, that means I'm going to be in that position because the vote count will show that I've lost. So the Supreme Court said, okay, you're right. 
We're not going to continue to count the votes. In fact, we're going to tell the Florida Supreme Court that its methods are flawed and wrong. And we, therefore, are going to say stop. We're not even going to tell them to reform their standards. We're not even going to tell them to fix them. We're going to just put a stop to all of this right here and right now. We're going to literally put pay to all this stuff. You've got to stop counting. And the five justices on the U.S. Supreme Court invented, completely invented a reason. Invented a reason. There was no judicial authority for this. It was completely made up 20 years ago today. And I will put a link to this ruling. I forget. Maybe it's 13 pages. Maybe it's 30. But I'm going to link to it. You may read it. You may not. But I tell you, the dissent that you must read is the one that I have talked about before on this podcast from none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice. Her name does come up here because, as I have alluded to, there is a connective tissue here of history and people involved in that. Just as I made the connection between George W. Bush and Donald Trump both saying, stop counting votes, enemies of democracy, one of whom started a war in Iraq. In fact, it wasn't even a war because Saddam Hussein did not do anything to the United States and was not an imminent threat. These weapons of mass destruction, where are they? Oh, under the table? Are they over here? Barney, Barney the dog, Barney, have you seen them? I mean, that was the joke, and I told you this earlier this week. That was the joke that was being perpetrated and expressed during a White House correspondence dinner. You can go look it up. You will see the video yourself of George W. Bush in slides looking under a table for the weapons of mass destruction he lied about that led to the murders, the deaths of a million Iraqis and led to the deaths of thousands of American service members who believed in their country, who fought for their country and needlessly died as a result of lies from George W. Bush, who some people are now looking at with reverence. Just like you have someone in the White House now who lied, who told you this year, oh, there's nothing to see here. This virus is just a flu. It'll be over by April. It's one person coming in from China. And on February the 7th, as Mike Pompeo of the State Department was sending 18 tons of personal protective equipment to China. Ventilators, masks, gowns. On that February 7th date of 2020, that same date, Donald Trump was talking to Bob Woodward and telling him, Oh, Bob, this is a deadly, deadly virus. 
Oh my God, this is more strenuous than your everyday flus. It's more strenuous. It's deadly, Bob. Oh, this thing here, Bob. It's deadly. It's deadly. You can read it. You can hear that tape and you can read that book, Rage by Bob Woodward. I've given away a copy of that earlier this year. And one of the listeners to this podcast um, notified me that they received a copy of the book. They got their copy of the book and I'm, I'm really glad for that. And that they are avidly reading it. As should you, by the way. But the Cliff Notes version is really encapsulated in that recreation I just did. That's what that's what Donald Trump said to Bob Woodward. Oh, Bob, this is really serious. This is a deadly virus. And Donald Trump on that same day and other days subsequent to it lied to you, to me, to us, to the world. While he was telling the truth to Bob Woodward for a book because he thought he could make himself look good. So, yes. Oh, I want to project like I really care. So, yeah, Bob, this is really serious. But he lied to us, to you, didn't he? Just like George W. Bush lied. And you know what? A million Iraqis died then. And thousands of U.S. service personnel died then. And now, 20 years later, we have almost three 100,000 people dead in the United States because of Donald Trump's lies and his deliberate non-action, which is something that is, well, can only be characterized as genocide, of, as mass murder at the minimum. Mass murder. He didn't do anything. He mocked Governor Cuomo. I don't know why New York would need 30,000, 40,000 ventilators. I have no idea, he said back in April or thereabouts, why they would need that many ventilators. And then ventilators that didn't work were being sent to California. Opportunities to, well, opportunities to have masks from the WTO in January of 2020 were turned down by Donald Trump because they wanted to make some money. The United States Supreme Court in 2000 said that the Florida Supreme Court's model for these votes to continue to be counted on the Al Gore request of a recount. Oh, that was not a really good counting system. It was un... Well, it was fair in theory, but unfair in practice. These five people were making this up. These five people... On the United States Supreme Court, five people 
determined the election. Not millions of Floridians, not millions of people voting. Five people. Five. That is too much power for one court to have. Five people deciding the presidential election. And then look what happened in those next four years. 9-11 happened. He had a so-called president who didn't want to read the August 5th, 2001 presidential daily brief that said bin Laden determined to strike inside the United States. Hmm. Oh, and then major combat operations have ended in the battle of Iraq. The United States and our allies are victorious. Really? Mission accomplished? Then we had Hurricane Katrina in his second term. After the American public, scared to death of orange alerts, said, yeah, we'll have another four years of this. And we had another, what, two, three thousand people die in New Orleans and thereabouts around the Gulf Coast states because George W. Bush was too busy having a birthday cake celebration with John McCain, the dearly departed one, as they, you know, he's fondly remembered now. I respect John McCain's service. And this is John McCain also who was the the resistor to the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. That never gets talked about anymore, but it's the truth. Arizona was the last state to recognize that holiday. The birthday, McCain's birthday is August the 29th. If I am not mistaken, it's right around there. And he went to Arizona, did W, to celebrate with John McCain. And if you go on the internet, you will find pictures of the two of them smiling. And I believe a birthday cake may be in the vicinity somewhere. While people were dying and drowning in New Orleans and there around the Gulf Coast states. And, you know, including obviously Louisiana, where New Orleans is. Hurricane Katrina did untold damage and George W. Bush did nothing for a good five or six days and tapped the International Horses Association, Arabian Horses Association guy, Michael Brown, to be the head of FEMA. And then he sat on his hands. And then then George W. Bush decided to wake up and do something. Beyond the photo ops. He went out and said, Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. And of course, Brownie was not doing a heck of any job. But contributing to the deaths of many black people in the Gulf Coast states. And other people as well. The predominant majority of them were black So five people deciding a, an election, a presidential election, is a very, very dangerous and deadly thing. 
And to invent a rationale like this 20 years ago today. Oh, well, it's unfair. It's, uh, it's fair in theory, but it's unfair in practice. This is absolute rubbish. The Florida Supreme Court had every right to prescribe, to prescribe a method for counting that was going on. And this nonsense about time constraints. Well, you know, this would be a real problem for for us because it would run up against the safe harbor provision. Safe harbor. Do those two words sound familiar to you, dear listener? We have a safe harbor provision coming up literally in two days from now. Monday, December 14th is the official date that all of these states certify the election results for Joe Biden. That's coming up on Monday of this coming week. Stay tuned for that, by the way. And by the way, they're going to certify for Joe Biden. More on that coming up in the next few days. But this is what the U.S. Supreme Court was saying. The majority who made this ugly, disgusting, undemocratic coup decision. It was a coup. This was the written version of the coup. This was the sign-off on it. It was. I, I, I I kid you not. Making up things as they went along. That is not the province of justices or judges. But yet, in black and white, it happened. Right there before your eyes. Just like Donald Trump was committing a coup attempt right before your very eyes. 20 years ago today, five members of the United States Supreme Court, and at least two of them, are still on that court. Certainly one of them is in Justice Clarence Thomas. Boy, he's seen a lot, hasn't he? He's seen a lot. And anyway, this rationale was not one that was legally with any kind of standing at all. There was no standing for this. The claims of jurisdiction for the United States Supreme Court to decide this are absolutely fictional. You're told in law school, that these state matters, unless there is something invidious, if there's some kind of invidious discrimination or rational basis test or something, or that rational basis deals with discrimination, but because it's very important when you're dealing with legal term of art, terms of art, you've got to be careful because they don't necessarily apply across the board in the law or in, in, in any jurisprudence. You have to be very careful about what you're using them for. And I mean, there was no equal protection violation here. I'm going to read you what I think is the most important part of Justice Ginsburg's dissent from 20 years ago today. Quote, I agree with Justice Stevens that petitioners, that's George W. Bush, have not presented a substantial equal protection claim. Ideally, 
perfection would be the appropriate standard for judging the recount. But we live in an imperfect world, one in which thousands of votes have not been counted. I cannot agree that the recount adopted by the Florida court, flawed as it may be, would yield a result any less fair or precise than the certification that preceded that recount. Even if there were an equal protection violation, I would agree with Justice Stevens, Justice Souter, and Justice Breyer. And Justice Breyer is still on the court, along with Justice Thomas. That the court's concern about the December 12th date is misplaced. Time is short in part because of the court's entry of a stay on December 9th, several hours after an able circuit judge in Leon County had begun to superintend the recount process. More fundamentally, the court's reluctance to let the recount go forward, despite its suggestion that the search for intent can be confined by specific rules designed to ensure uniform treatment ultimately turns on its own judgment about the practical realities of implementing a recount, not the judgment of those much closer to the process. Equally important, as Justice Breyer explains, the December 12th date for bringing Florida's electoral votes into 3 U.S.C. Section 5 Safe Harbor lacks the significance the court assigns it. Were that date to pass, Florida would still be entitled to deliver electoral votes. Congress must count unless both houses find that the votes had not been regularly given. The statute identifies other significant dates. Section 12 specifies the fourth Wednesday in December this year, December 27th, as the date on which Congress, if it has not received a state's electoral votes shall request the state secretary of state to send a certified return immediately. But none of these dates has ultimate significance in light of Congress's detailed provisions for determining on the 6th day of January the validity of electoral votes, section 15. The court assumes that time will not permit orderly judicial review of any disputed matters that arise. But no one has doubted the good faith and diligence with which Florida election officials, attorneys for all sides of this controversy, and the courts of law have performed their duties. Notably, the Florida Supreme Court has produced two substantial opinions within 29 hours of oral argument. In sum, the court's conclusion, and sum is S-U-M, in sum, the court's conclusion that a constitutionally adequate recount is impractical is a prophecy the court's own judgment will not allow to be tested.
Such an untested prophecy should not decide the presidency of the United States. I dissent. That was Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg exactly 20 years ago today. Saturday, December the 12th, 2000. One other thing I want to mention here. This from Justice Breyer, who also dissented. And by the way, Justice Stevens and Justice Ginsburg joined this dissent. And also Justice Souter did in part. These are the four justices who dissented. Here is Justice Breyer, and I'm going to just read one paragraph, the first of his dissent. Justice Breyer is still on the Supreme Court, by the way. Again, as I pointed out a few minutes ago. Listen to this, the first paragraph of his dissent from exactly 20 years ago today. The court was wrong to take this case. It was wrong to grant a stay. It should now vacate that stay and permit the Florida Supreme Court to decide whether the recount should resume. I couldn't have said it or written it any better than Justice Breyer or any better than the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Welcome back. We need to have our institutions strengthened. And Fareed Zakaria last, well, last Sunday, talked about this. It's so important. After all we have seen here. This year. And what's interesting is. That yesterday, December the 11th, 2020, a Friday. Almost exactly 20 years ago, to the very day, yesterday, the same United States Supreme Court, with at least two of the members of that court, Justice Breyer and Justice Thomas, in a 9-0 to zero decision, as if it recognized, at least, the errors of its ways 20 years ago. The Supreme Court on Friday, December the 11th, 2020. Absolutely said no, hell no, to the Texas. State of Texas motion. To challenge the results in numerous states, including Pennsylvania. They wanted to actually say. That the results in Pennsylvania and other states that saw Joe Biden win results that were certified by those states. The Texas, Texas, the state of Texas, wanted to throw those results out. This is a coup attempt right before your eyes. This is treasonous. And the Supreme Court of these United States, just yesterday, said the following. 
denied. That is the Cliff Notes shorthand. But I will read you the one-page opinion. The second one-page opinion that the United States Supreme Court has given in the last four days. This is Texas versus Pennsylvania et al. Friday, December 11th, 2020. This is the U.S. Supreme Court speaking here. The state of Texas's motion for leave to file a bill of complaint is denied for lack of standing under Article 3 of the Constitution. Texas has not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. All other pending motions are dismissed as moot. Statement of Justice Alito, whom Justice Thomas joins. Justice Thomas. In my view, we do not have discretion to deny the filing of a bill of complaint in a case that falls within our original jurisdiction. I would therefore grant the motion to file the bill of complaint, but would not grant other relief, and I express no view on any other issue. That is Justice Alito, who, along with Justice Thomas, are the two most conservative people on the United States Supreme Court, who 20 years ago, in the case of Justice Clarence Thomas, ruled in favor of George W. Bush. Yesterday, almost exactly 20 years to the day of that decision, Justice Thomas joined Justice Alito and said hell no to Donald Trump and the Republicans. Hell no to their coup attempts. Hell no to their madness. Hell no to their danger and destruction. And I tell you, it makes me wonder, would they have done the same if this was another Florida situation and not the so clear-cut, decisive, landslide victory of Joe Biden? What if this election was a lot closer? And what if it was very, very close in one state? Then what would we have seen? I wonder if yesterday's decision was the 20-year delayed apology for the decision on Saturday, December 12th, 2000. A decision given 20 years ago today. We must guard against institutions being corrupted. And at least yesterday and on a day earlier this week, the United, Supreme, United States Supreme Court decided to protect itself, not corrupt itself. Nine people spoke with a universal voice on the most conservative court that we have ever had, arguably. Six conservatives on that nine-member court. And yet all nine of the justices, those six included, decided to stand up for any notion of democracy in the United States with those two decisions, particularly the one yesterday.
Texas trying to, I mean, this is tyranny. Texas wants to overturn the results of elections that you and I voted in. They want to overturn those results in those states. What it really is, is they want to commit tyranny. They want to conduct a coup. And they attempted to. And I think, quite frankly, that the language of what I just read to you in that one-page decision should have actually had stronger language to put paid to all this treason and coup attempts. Because you know these Republicans will try this again with someone a bit smarter, a bit more retail, a Tom Cotton of Arkansas, for example, who is in the Senate, who this year in the New York Times, I think it was June of this year, was saying, send in the troops, send in the tanks. That was on the op-ed page of the New York Times. He actually fired people for this at the New York Times, for allowing that filth, that fascism, that Gestapo mentality. They actually fired people. And the New York Times should never have put that column in there in the first place. But they did. Someone sought it fit. It's not about censoring, censoring anything. It's about the kind of dangers that America, the United States, is being subjected to. And when Tom Cotton decides to run for president in 2024, we had all best be paying very very close attention. Oh yeah. There is another election I want to talk about. And I'll talk about it for a few minutes. Right after this. We take back control of our money so we can spend millions more uh, every week on the NHS or, or whatever priorities we want, hundreds of millions. We can take back control of our borders with an Australian-style points-based system so we can bring in people, uh, whether they're scientists or agricultural workers that this country needs. Uh, but we can control it. We can take back control of our laws so we can do things in our railway, do things differently and better. Another Brexit referendum means more delay, it means more uncertainty, it means more acrimony and division in our country when this country is aching to move on. On day one of the new parliament in December, we will start getting our new deal through so we get Brexit done in January and put the uncertainty behind us. Let's make 2020 about the people of this country and not about its politicians. Let's get out of the rut of the last three years and get on with our work as Conservatives of making this country the greatest place in the world to live. The greatest place to start a family, the greatest place to send your kids to school, to start a business. The place that leads the world in clean, green technology and tackling climate change and greenhouse gases. Let's get Brexit done, my friends, and get on with our project of sensible, moderate, sensible, moderate, but tax-cutting one-nation Conservatives and spreading hope and opportunity across the whole of the UK and let's unleash the potential of this country. It's 10 o'clock, the Brexit election is over and it looks like this. 
The exit poll is predicting, is indicating it's a conservative win that the conservatives will have 368 seats. The Labour Party, 191. The Liberal Democrats will gain 13. The Brexit Party on zero. Scottish National Party, 55. And the Greens on one. That others will have 22. So there it is, the exit poll predicting a big conservative win, a majority for Boris Johnson. My first takeaway is there is a prime minister that took a big gamble. He could have gone down as the worst prime minister in recent history if he'd taken this gamble lived. and shortest lived and lost. And he took the gamble and he won and he won big. And now he has got a five-year term with a proper majority to change this country in a way that he sees fit and legislate. He will get Brexit done. Uh, and that is an incredible achievement for Boris Johnson and his team. The slight problem, of course, is that getting Brexit done isn't really true because if we pass the withdrawal agreement as it is, unamended, uh, then I fear we're in for uh, perhaps up to three years of agonising negotiations. Don't you believe him then, Boris Johnson, when he says, you know, this 11 months of transition and whatever happens by the end of 2020, it's out. You don't, you don't believe him? You think he'll go for an well, extension? Well, even if he uh, goes into this with the best of intentions, the problem with the withdrawal agreement is that it puts so much power into Mr. Barnier's hands. Um, and I, uh, I would have thought they would enjoy uh, seeing our discomfort. Look, I hope I'm wrong. I hope we finish up with a free trade deal. I hope we uh, don't finish up with regulatory alignment on everything from financial services to fisheries. Uh, but as it is... The way the withdrawal agreement is worded uh, is, from a Brexiteer's point of view, not satisfactory. You know what? Uh, you agree on, on one thing anyway with my guest. I'm sure you've been watching during the uh, evening, former Speaker uh, John Burko, uh, And that is John Burko on the fact, Mr Farage there, saying that passing the withdrawal agreement is not getting Brexit done. Well, uh, we agree on that point, but for pretty different reasons, as I note the expression on Nigel's face shows he's relieved to discover. My position is to say that they can get the withdrawal agreement through, but there's a huge amount more to be done if Brexit is to become a reality, and that will take several years. I think, to be fair, Nigel's point is that he just very strongly disapproves of the withdrawal agreement because, I and mean, he can articulate it for himself, he doesn't think it constitutes a proper okay. withdrawal. That, I think, is... That, and that's, where you, that's obviously where you begin to differ. I, I mean, mean I, I'm always happy to be obliging, Nigel, and to try to advance your own argument well, for you. <laughs> Even if I think it is absolute copper-bottomed rubbish, nevertheless, I'm happy to help to articulate your point of view if I'm invited well. to do so. At this stage, it does look as though this one-nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate. Well, that's it. Uh, confirmation of the result. The Conservatives have formally won this general election. That was the call exactly one year ago today, December the 12th, 2019, when in the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson and the Conservatives had just scored a historic majority, an historic win in the United Kingdom general election exactly one year ago today. The Labour Party 
of the United Kingdom got wiped out and humiliated with the fewest number of seats in the House of Commons since 1935. The Labour Party got just 202 seats, an all-time low since 1935. There was a lot of egg on the faces of the Labour Party, and quite frankly, a lot of members of Labour knew that this was coming, and some of them secretly were happy because the leader of the party, and I had this conversation with Nigel Nelson, the longest-serving political editor in Britain, just a few days ago. Because the leader of the party at the time, the Labour Party at the time, Jeremy Corbyn, was not well-liked by a lot of the moderates. They were audio tapes by Jonathan Ashworth, who at the time, I think, was the shadow um, health minister, or, or an office to that effect, who had said, oh, my friend recorded me and I didn't know. And, you know, I said this, I didn't trust or I trusted that he wouldn't let this out. And it got leaked. And Ashworth, Ashworth was saying all these uncomplimentary things about Jeremy Corbyn. And by the way, Ashford wanted this out there, folks. Come on. Come on now. Jonathan Ashworth is not this big fan of Jeremy Corbyn. But my whole point is, is that the Labour Party were trounced. This was one of those victories that humbled Labour, wounded Labour, completely wounded Labour. And Boris Johnson won that victory, as Nigel Nelson pointed out earlier this week, on the strength of get Brexit done. And what has happened since one year on? A no deal that is inevitable. A no deal that will mean that millions of people in England and across the UK at large will be severely hurt by this. People's businesses will die. People's livelihoods will end. People's lives will be at grave risk. I'm not kidding. This Brexit mess has absolutely poisoned the well. And the media are to blame, the right-wing media in England especially, the Barclay brothers of that poisonous Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. What vile filth that is. poisoning the minds and the hearts of a lot of people in England in particular. Scotland is a lot smarter on this. They've seen this BS coming for four years plus. But if you really want to fool and school a sizable portion of people in England, my native country, all you have to do, aside from putting out the bobs in the right-wing media, like the BBC, because they basically lean right. They always have had the uh, bouquets thrown to the Tories. They've thrown them themselves. One of their famous political correspondents, I won't mention her name, is well up in that Tory rank. 
and close to Boris Johnson. But three things you need to do if you want to swindle, con, three-card Monty, perpetuate a great train robbery. I mean, Ronald Biggs doesn't have anything on Boris Johnson or Jacob Rees-Mogg or Nigel Farage or Aaron Banks or Michael Gove or any of these fools, these dangerous people. These money makers. Oh, no, no. Money stealers. These guys are going to be counting their money on the backs of people all over the UK. Ordinary people who want their businesses to be the way they were before this monstrosity begins on January 1st. This is a conversation that Claire Pearsall, the conservative councillor of New Ash Green in Kent and I were having, you know, we had this conversation a month ago. And we talked about this. She talked about how a no deal Brexit would absolutely be poisonous. Kent would be ravaged. Ports of entry go through Kent this this is this is very serious. The kinds of headaches that this will produce. But I'm going to go back to this because I'm not going to forget what I'm about to say. I'm not going to go through this podcast episode and not talk about this. Because by the way, the conservatives have been an absolute mess. An absolute mess. And for everything that Labour is and has been lately, what a mess, these Tories. I mean, if you really do want to fool and school many people in a terrified English public, in fact, they're not even terrified. It's this is what people do to you, to con you and game you and fraud you and steal from you. How do you do that in England when it comes to Brexit? Aside from these right-wing poisonous media people like the Barclay Brothers and others, Murdoch and all these poisonous people who poison your heart and your mind into thinking that somehow people are out to get you. Here, Here's my three steps on how that's done. One, you stir up this pre-existing racism and xenophobia and jingoism in England. You lie, number two, lie, and manufacture grievance, this artificial grievance and victimhood, while you attack the actual and historic grievances that people have who are oppressed currently and who currently face injustice. You trivialize that. You attack it. You're not grieved. You're not grieved. Oh, that happened a long time ago. You see. Windrush? Come on. What are you talking about? The mangrove case? Oh, no. That doesn't matter. That was the 1970s or the 1960s. Oh, those so-called riots in the late 50s and 60s? 
where people were being killed. Oh, don't worry about that. Oh, oh, all the enslavement that the UK did to black folk. Oh, no, don't worry about that. That was a long time ago. What are you complaining about? And number three, you use simple slogans to convince people that they are exceptional. This English exceptionalism without thought, without reason, without perspective, without history. This blind fanaticism. And then when you question all of that, you just have the rah-rah brigade who trample logic because they don't have any and just shout louder because they think that might makes right and who shouts the loudest wins. And they will continue to do this until the boat that they are in sinks in that sea of filth and they are drowned in it to the very last with the last breaths that people like this take they will always declare oh yeah Brexit's the right thing we voted to leave we voted to leave but we didn't think did we we were duped and as I've said before on this podcast dear listener Many people would rather be told that they are foolish than be told that they have been fooled. Boris Johnson is worse than Margaret Thatcher ever was. Margaret Thatcher, and I lived through the Thatcher years in England, was never, ever one who wanted to destroy the country. As odious as she was, and was she ever odious, particularly to unions and the working class, she never, ever wanted to completely destroy the United Kingdom and to completely stop it from functioning She embraced the common market that the UK participated in in the early 1970s. She participated, she engaged in that. She never wanted to crush the United Kingdom and send businesses to its knees and bring those businesses to their knees. Boris Johnson wanted to do that is doing that. It will happen. There are literally 24 hours from now that there will be this so-called deadline for talks in the EU. And the arrogance of these people in the United Kingdom, specifically Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and Dominic Raab and Jacob Rees-Moss and Nigel Farage. And I could go on and on and on. Theresa May also belongs on that list. We want respect from the EU. I mean, this is madness. You literally have people in the Conservative Party, particularly the parliamentary Conservatives, holding guns to their own heads in a metaphorical way, figurative way, actually, 
So let me change that. You figuratively, figuratively have members of the parliamentary conservatives holding guns, guns to their own heads and telling the EU, the UK, we want respect. The EU, you must show us respect. Yeah, we've got these guns pointed to our own. I mean, we've got these guns pointing to our own heads as we negotiate with the EU. Show us some respect, EU. Show us some respect, European Union. Ursula von der Leyen, show us some respect. I mean, we've got these guns pointed at our own heads. We are pointing them at our own heads. But show us some respect. Relieve us of our own stupidity. It is the most asinine and asininely arrogant thing I have ever heard. And that's what you get when you have an uneducated public, a vastly right-wing and conservative media that dupes and schools and fools and plays to the racism of people in the English public and con men and women who will have you believe that Brexit is somehow the greatest thing since sliced bread. No Marmite. We don't want any of that on the bread. But somehow Brexit's going to be this marvelous thing and your life is going to be just fine and dandy. Instead, the truth is, is that something that was procured by a bunch of lies with the help of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica in 2016 when you voted to leave 52% to 48 the same year that Donald Trump would then later become, well, cheat his way into the White House. Somehow you think that you are so exceptional. This is my own country I'm talking about, England. You're so exceptional. I mean, you participated in the enslavement of black people. Oh, you're so exceptional. What you did to the Windrush generation, so exceptional. Conservative governments. Oh, you're so exceptional. Enoch Powell in the 60s. The rivers of blood, the river Tiber. Racist. Conservative, a racist. Enoch Powell. The kinds of campaigns that Enoch Powell and other white male conservatives were running. If you don't want a blank for a neighbor vote don't vote Labour or whatever the hell that was. I remember that stuff. It's in England. And all this venom toward the Duchess, the Duchess of Sussex. All this venom toward her. I've talked about that before. Oh, but that's not. Now they're not being racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure they're not. Meghan Markle. Yeah, all that venom and anger. Literally, you want to talk about a Brexit. They exited like nothing because of all this racism 
and this hatred, they being Prince Harry and the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. They left the country. They left the royal family. And it was not just only because of the British public and this ragtag right-wing racist press. It was also because of members of the royal family, including the queen, the beloved queen, Queen Elizabeth II, who has been on the throne about 60, 67 years now. Oh, English exceptionalism. It's my country I'm talking about. We have to be honest about the countries we're from and examine them, the good and the bad. And why I picked December 12th is because it is a date that in history where some things must never, ever be repeated. And in the case of this, one year ago today when people were saying, ha ha, Boris has won, the Conservatives have won, go home, we're going to get Brexit done. Now, one year later, what exactly have you accomplished? What exactly have you to be proud of? when it comes to Brexit, and for that matter, anything else. You got a tier system, one, two, and three, what a disaster that's been. And now you're gonna open up, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna open up all the tiers for five days across Christmas. And then you're gonna close them down again after everybody gets this virus? Boris Johnson truly is worse than Margaret Thatcher. And I have to say, I never thought I would ever, ever say that there was someone in UK politics in terms of the prime minister, that there would be a worse prime minister. But exhibit A is Boris Johnson, who, by the way, speaking of media, was once a columnist for both the Times of London and the Daily Telegraph. And by the way, he wrote two columns, one to leave the UK with Brexit, to leave the EU, and one to stay in the EU. True story. By the way, he was fired from the Times for, pla for plagiarism. Oh, but that didn't stop the right-wing Daily Telegraph from picking him up where he could spew his filth and his lies and his hate, the racist things that he wrote about black people, the names he called them. It's all documented. And that guy's the prime minister. There is something very poisonous about the right-wing news media in England and very racist about it and very misogynist about it, and very anti-immigrant about it. I alluded to this in a conversation last week with Ruth Ben-Ghia, the historian who 
has a book out now called Strongman. I strongly recommend it. Strongman, Mussolini to the present. And I had talked about all of these authoritarian people, these dictators, these thugs, these men who had connections to the news media, whether as newspaper columnists or owners. And I pointed out that Boris Johnson, while not a strong man or certainly not a dictator, certainly not in the mold of people like Hitler, who had his own television and radio station and people like Mussolini, who was once a newspaper columnist, for example, and Berlusconi in Italy, Silvio Berlusconi more recently, who owned media in, in, in Italy. While Boris Johnson is not of that genus, he certainly, again, has a connection with them in the sense that he's using the newspapers, the media, to capture and poison and influence the well of the English public so that it would be easy to massage a cross-section of that public to go along with anything he said. He was a disaster as the mayor of London. But yet, there was an overwhelming victory for him and his party. I wonder if in four or so years from now, people in my country and people across the UK would vote these conservatives in after everything we've seen with this Brexit mess. With their lives in tatters, with businesses not able to operate the same way, with all these complications, passport issues, food issues. The food is going to, the price of food in the UK is going to go through the roof. It's going to go up at least five to 10 pounds. Watch next year, at the beginning of the year, during a pandemic. I really wonder, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I really wonder if it is at all possible that the right wing media could dupe a large cross-section of the English public, in particular, to again vote in conservative MPs and vote in Boris Johnson if you're in Ricelip in Uxbridge. I wonder if that would possibly happen again. This English exceptionalism. Oh no. Surely they won't do that in 2023 or 2024. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. And I have always said, no deal is better than a bad deal. But I have also been clear that the best outcome is for the UK to leave with a deal. As I told EU leaders, neither side should demand the unacceptable of the other. Throughout this process, I have treated the EU with nothing but respect. The UK expects the same. A good relationship at the end of this process depends on it.